Disclaimer. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of the New American Magazine. They're submitted for your entertainment and consideration. You should consult your doctor before considering expending too much strenuous energy on these controversial subjects. If you don't have medical authorization, consider this invitation as your permission slip for independent thought. This is Under the Iceberg, hosted by Daniel Natal, co-hosted by investigative researcher Jenny Silcox, as well as publisher for the New American Magazine, Dennis Barron. In addition, the panel is pleased to include the mysterious Sid, a man broadcasting from his undisclosed underground command center. Tonight's episode is dedicated to the conspiracy of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. Chapter 1. The Premise. Europe's interest in alchemy and the esoteric had its roots in trade in the Middle Ages, as boats traveling from Egypt and the Middle East arrived in the mercantile hub of the West, Italy. From there, books and manuscripts from exotic places entered Europe. It might be stated in passing that trade was also how the Great Library of Alexandria was founded in antiquity. Alexander the Great founded it and gave it the decree that any ship passing through had to have its scrolls and manuscripts copied. They would give the copies to the merchants and place the originals in the Library of Alexandria. This became the world's first university, so to speak, with the knowledge of three continents housed within its walls. Great thinkers flocked to Alexandria to learn history, philosophy, mathematics, astronomy, and so forth. So trade was one of the precipitating factors of this accumulation of knowledge. This habit didn't end in antiquity. Even after the fall of Egypt subsequent to the Muslim conquest and the destruction of the Library of Alexandria by Caliph Omar, the habit of mercantile hubs becoming magnets for books and knowledge persisted. The Renaissance started when the republics of Florence and Venice became maritime powers in the Mediterranean, and all sorts of books and manuscripts flowed into Italy. Centuries later, after England became the world's mercantile capital, the same phenomenon occurred, whereby exotic and esoteric books flowed into the British Empire from its colonies from all over the world. Cicero in ancient Rome warned about this function. In De Repubblica, he wrote, In maritime cities, too, a sort of debasing and changeable manners prevail. New languages and new customs are mingled together, and not only productions, but manners are imported from abroad, so that nothing remains entire of the pristine institutions. Even they who inhabit the cities are not faithful to their homes, but with capricious inclinations and longings are carried far from them. And although their persons remain, their minds are rambling and wandering abroad. Nor did Carthage or Corinth long before shaken owe their ruin to anything more than to the unsettled scattering of the citizens who abandoned the study of agriculture and arms through their cupidity of gain and love of roaming. Many pernicious excitements, too, to luxury are brought over the sea to cities by commercial importation or by conquest. As Cicero observes, new languages and new customs are mingled together. And he's right. Today we call this syncretism, the mixing together of different belief systems into a new synthesis. This happened in England in the 19th century when Englishmen, stifled by the materialism of Great Britain after the Industrial Revolution and the rise of Darwinism, were thrown back upon spirituality and tried to mix the esoteric traditions of the alchemists in the Middle Ages with the strains of thought coming into Europe from Egypt after Napoleon's conquest of that country and the discovery of the Rosetta Stone there in 1799 and its translation in 1822. After this, Europe went into a frenzy of Egyptomania. It became a huge fad. It was in this atmosphere that three Freemasons, William Robert Woodman, William Wynne Westcott, and Samuel Little Mathers, got together to found the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. 
They mixed elements of the teachings of alchemist Dr. John Dee from the 1500s with theosophy and Freemasonry to create an esoteric mystery school. Many famous people would pass through its doors, such as the poet William Butler Yeats and occultist Aleister Crowley, and go on to produce a profound effect upon both the 20th and 21st centuries through the creation of what we today know as the New Age movement. Well, that's the basic premise. Anyone want to jump in? Well, there is certainly a lot to say about um, the functioning of secret societies in general, uh, Gnostic mystery secret societies in particular throughout history. Uh, so this is, I think, a doorway into a very large subject matter. The Egyptomania um, thing, it, it seems like it was uh, at the turn of the century, it was really in vogue to have um, seances and it, everybody had a Ouija board and it was just a cultural phenomenon where people were trying to tap into something more ancient. Yeah, like uh, like you have to remember the United States was founded, right, in 1776. And this was right around the time, like Napoleon, I mean, you know, almost contemporaneous with our revolution, you know, just a few decades later was the French Revolution, right? And um, so Napoleon is, is running around, um, you know, at this time period, he conquers Egypt, he kind of discovers the Sphinx, you know, everybody's excited about that. And so the, it even affects America in the, in the sense of, I mean, you look, look at the, the obelisk of the Washington Monument, look at a lot of the, the kind of Freemasonry and, and the mystery schools that start kind of, you know, gaining cachet. And all these people are kind of, you know, putting on fezes and, you know, kind of quasi, you know, North African or Middle Eastern garb, you know, Shriners and stuff like that. Um, Cause they, they found this stuff like really, really interesting, but yeah, like it, it like those two strains of kind of the, the deadening of the human soul through the industrial revolution and, you know, looking at the universe as a giant mechanism. I mean, since Descartes, you know, like a giant clock, the clockwork of the universe, everything is just mechanistic and dead and robotic. And then you look at the, um, the, the, the strain of uh, the, the discovery of Egyptomania and uh, all, all of these uh, Library of Alexandria type, you know, uh, mystery schools. I mean, Kabbalah came out of, of Al, uh, Alexandria. Um, that was just the Jewish version of Neoplatonism. Um, you know, so, so you had the Gnostics on one side of the Mediterranean and then you had the Jews on the other side of the Mediterranean. They both started in Alexandria and the Jews just happened to go to Spain. And so they brought Kabbalah to Spain. The, the, you know, the Gnostics brought, you know, kind of these esoteric teachings, you know, the Hermetica and stuff, uh, through North Africa and the Middle East. And then they, they emerge into Europe and it kind of, the cycle resuscitates again, you know, and, and so in England, because of mercantilism, they, they kind of re, the cycle just repeats itself again, you know, so. So when you start looking into the occult and spirituality and stuff like this, you have to really, well, how I put it, whenever you come from, from like a Western standpoint, the West, like around, like the, I'd say about the past hundred years or so, has generally abandoned spiritual practice. It's become way more materialistic, where, whereas before, like the, like orders of the Golden Hermetic Dawn and other orders, were established and there was a whole craze like Ginny was saying with spiritualism occultism tarot cards that's all gone now people don't really worry about the spiritual they worry more about their rent they worry more about how much money they're making they don't worry about the next life even though that everything we do here is preparation for it although except that it seems like it's really cool to be satanist yeah, so we'll we'll get into that, like I was saying earlier. But basically, because we've been aban- because we've abandoned the spiritual aspect, I mean, for the most part of Christianity, Western society is trying to find supplements for it, and it's having to delve back into deeper, darker roots, right? Chapter two. 
speculation. So, so Dennis, what what are your uh, your initial takes uh, as we start launching into the idea of kind of you know hermeticism uh, reaching the West at the time period of the you know nineteenth century when the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was uh, starting to take root in England? Well, I think it's a lot deeper than the nineteenth century, um, and I think it also deals directly with the Christian encounter in the ancient Christian sense of uh, the encounter with Gnosticism. In the ancient world, but it goes even deeper Christian theologically, even into the Old Testament. And I think what we're looking at when we talk about the occult in general and uh, uh, Hermeticism and Gnosticism in particular is you're talking about uh, the concept that it's possible to access uh, through certain teachers who have already gained this access to secret knowledge that you can then use for your own salvation, however you wish to define that. Uh, and so uh, that gets you through the various levels that these orders have in place. And as you progress through the levels, the secret knowledge is, is revealed to you gradually here, here, there, and everywhere through these levels. And that flies right in the face of um, uh, Christian theology. And it starts with the idea of paradise lost uh, from, from the Old Testament. And what we saw in paradise, in the lost paradise, was... Uh, you know, the creation of the world given to Adam and Eve, given, given to humankind, created in God's image. And everything, because these were, you know, created in God's image, everything was then given to them freely uh, by God. And yet, Eve was tempted by the apple. Eve was tempted by the forbidden knowledge. Uh, it wasn't the fact that the knowledge itself was forbidden that was the sin. It was the fact that rather than taking it as it was freely given by God, uh, she went around God, uh, and she, uh, through Adam, Adam went around God, and they accessed, attempted to access the knowledge, even though God was freely giving it, and this was the sin. Uh, and this yeah, is Yeah, exactly they were trying to deceive, happened. or they yeah. were trying to cover up the fact that they had done it. Right, and so this is exactly what we see happening in the occult in general, and Hermeticism and Gnosticism in particular, is individuals, individual, you know, so-called practitioners of these, uh, you know, particular orders, uh, doing the exact same thing as what took place in the Garden of Eden story. And so that is what the Christian uh, religion and Christian theologians historically would go back to and say, this is, this is anti-Christian heresy. And now we've, we've talked a little bit, Sid brought up some really good points about how we've seen Christian uh, mystical and spiritual traditions, but even theological traditions writ large, disappear in the modern world. Um, and we're seeing a real explosion. Just look at popular culture of romantic uh, takes on occultism. Uh, you know, pull up Netflix and take a look at any young adult or teen-focused show, and it's a vampire this, magic that, and it's everywhere. And I've been taking a close look at this. It's very interesting how how everywhere it really is. Uh, at the same time, uh, we're seeing you know, no education whatsoever given to children in uh, the Christian traditions that, uh, you know, we, we generally historically have taken for granted as breathing life into our culture. Um, these two things are taking place simultaneously. One has to ask, uh, are these things accidental? And I don't think they're exactly accidental. And there's much with, I think, going back to the foundation of these uh, 19th century, 18th century, and 17th century Gnostic and Hermetic semi-modern orders uh, that really plays into what's been happening uh, in our culture today. Well, I, I wouldn't, I would challenge one of the things that you said uh, just for, <laughs> to play devil's advocate um, and just mm -hmm. to play devil's advocate, because I, I agree with almost everything you said, but what if these mystery religions, these, these cults that were coming out 
are not the opposite of Christianity um, because they're they're kind of substitutes. They're they're kind of bootleg versions of you know what what Christianity must have been like in Europe, uh, you know, in antiquity. You know, because you're getting things you know coming over the sea, you know, in boats. These exotic you know locales and exotic ideas and strange you know Oriental languages and stuff. Um, but the opposite of of the golden order of the dawn, the opposite of hermes- hermeticism, is not Christianity. Um, these are almost on the same bandwidth on one end. And then on the other end is materialism. And if you look at it, like materialism kind of trends toward Marxism. I mean, Marxism is pure materialism. They don't care about anything of the spirit. They want material things, crude material things. They don't want spiritual things like freedom or intangibles like, you know, the, uh, due process, you know, or uh, freedom of religion. or free- They don't care about any of those. Those are spiritual things. They want crude materials. They want houses. They want food. They want things they can touch, they can hold in their hands. And so yeah, and everything they make is ugly. Well, yeah, exactly. But but the thing is, if you look at that kind of diabolic, diabolical aspect of Marxism, and there's, there's been a whole book uh, that's been, re- it was recently published too, and it's about Karl Marx's poems to Satan. You know, like all these, I mean, he was a very, very dark, troubled man, um, you know, where he, he like uh, Camus said that, you know, Albert Camus, he said that um, the West's conception of masculine beauty is uh, related to Milton's version of Satan. And so apparently Karl Marx kind of, you know, was along, thinking along these lines. He thought Satan was a, a very compelling character, wrote poems to him, talked about selling his soul to Satan in these poems. Um, and and so you look at satanic inversion. And so Christians look toward the past, look toward like like what Dennis said, you know, this this perfect Garden of Eden, this path. And we, we, we have descended from it. We've fallen. There was a fall, right? And so we look at the past as this higher period, this higher age of perfection that we've lost. Whereas in materialism, just like all satanic things, it's an inversion. Where they look at the past as primitive and they look at the future as progress, you know, and, and so it, it's like a, a diabolical inversion of, of that worldview. And I, I think that some of these mystery religions, um, they're, they're kind of attempts, you know, kind of sad, pathetic attempts to, you know, as Christianity died in a place like England, you know, Charles Darwin rises up, all the churches are dying. I mean, it, it was a horrible, horrible uh, thing. And these these kind of people are like looking for something. Well, and, they had Henry VIII as a model. Yeah, in, in England. Yeah, I mean, exactly. If you think about the way he played around with religion and how he created an entire religion just so he could keep on marrying women. That's the best kind of religion. See, I'm going to get in trouble <laughs> yep. for that. I'm going to, to the dark place for that one. Um, okay, so I wanted to, I wanted to um, talk about, okay, so let's, let's go into uh, the, the documents, right? So, um, it says that the golden order of Don, or the hermetic golden, you know, order of the golden dawn was based on something called the cipher manuscripts. And it says there was a collection of 60 folios containing the structural outline of a series of magical initiation rituals corresponding to the spiritual elements of the earth, air, water, and fire. Uh, it says of uncertain provenance, the manuscripts were translated by the founders of the lodge, William Wynne Westcott, a London deputy coroner, a member of the SRIA, and one of the founders of the golden dawn, um, and he claimed to have received the manuscripts uh, through a Reverend A.F.A. Woodford, who was a colleague of the no- noted Masonic scholar Kenneth R.H. McKenzie. And so, what you have here is, is a gentleman uh, pretending to have, you know, translated manuscripts that you know were of dubious origin, um, and it's very similar add, to Mormonism. Can I add something real quick, Daniel? Yeah, of course. McKenzie's mentor, from what I've gathered, was Frederick Hawk- Hockley, who helped produce the Magus at John Dentley's bookstore. Right. So basically, the Magus was 
Okay, how do you say? A very, very popular book on magic. <laughs> so it, it stretches further and further back, right? And then another thing I'll add on to, the, to this is that after they cracked the documents, apparently a story about what was on there was a woman's about a woman's address who was order of the resurrection called Anna Sprankley. And so they basically they asked her if they could establish an order based on the teachings from the cipher manuscript. And she said, yes. And then later <laughs> she died. But then here's the weird part, right? So if you look at the documents, some people say they're fake. Some people say they're real. I'm kind of skeptical on them, to be honest. Well, one of the things that I found interesting was that they were going back to like the ancient Greeks, like Empedocles, right? Like earth, air, fire, and water. And it was like, that was the periodic table of antiquity. Um, what I wanted to, to talk about too, um, well, let me, let me play this, this one clip. This is a, a gentleman who purports to be uh, somebody from the resuscitated uh, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And, and the original Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn died in you know, circa 1903. Um, it right. broke apart. Aleister Crowley came in. He alienated a bunch of people. He was uh, seen as an eccentric and, and a slightly dangerous, uh, you know, unhinged person. And um, they they were going to give him, you know, they were going to elevate him up to a particular position. And the woman who was running it, uh, her, her name was Florence Farr. She, you know, just left. She was she was angry. And then she went over to the, the School of Theosophy, which was another one of the burgeoning cults at the time. Right. And uh, so it dies in 1903. But nevertheless, there was this gentleman, um, you know, kind of talking about hermeticism and the concept of magic. And I kind of wanted to, to play this for you guys. Okay, this is going to be a summary of the basic practices for the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn simplified course in magic. As you become more advanced, you will eventually simplify these practices by triggering pre-programmed functionality. So the functionality that you're going to put in place, that you're going to program into your mind, is going to be at first simple and getting gradually more complex, and then you're going to set up buttons or triggers that are simple in order to access the more complex programming. So you're starting simple, getting more complex, and then eventually creating a simple way to trigger the more complex programming. Okay, so I will be bringing new information that you're not going to be able to find anywhere else to the table, including making analogies between magic and computer programming and how magic is being used for practical purposes. So why I played that was he was giving the conception of magic as a form of habit formation. And I've discussed earlier, uh, ethics is an example of using the front part of your brain, the you know executive function portion of your brain, to hack the back part of your brain to create habits, right? And you're doing it for good, pre good reasons, moral reasons. So it was interesting to me that he was talking about rituals, using magical rituals as, as a very similar you know thing to create new habits, new habits of thought, new uh, kind of reflexive impulses that you wouldn't have ordinarily had. And I kind of wanted to to ask you guys, uh, you know, if you had any thoughts about that. Well, how to put it, there's there's multiple aspects 
for magic, right? So basically back in the day, magic was kind of seen as one thing fits all, right? So you had science, medicine, everything all mixed together, right? In a big old bag. So there is a psychological aspect that play into it. But it's also, I mean, some people can say that you're jumping through different timelines by doing this, or you're making your odds better by doing this and that. I mean, it's it's all just basically altering yourself to improve the odds of what you want to happen, right? So let's say, go ahead. Or Sorry. altering something. Yeah. So you, like, how do I put this? I'm really trying to explain this, but it's really hard. Well, it does yourself. use it uses manipulatives. That's one way that um, you know it's it uses manipulatives to help the crude physical aspect of being human. I think that you know the use of manipulatives like candles or whatever you know whatever. Well, I, I was thinking ri- rituals might start with self hypnosis. Right. So you're yeah, putting does, yourself yeah. in a mental state and even Catholicism, like my wife, um, you know, I'm, I'm a lapsed Catholic. And she said if she ever would go back to the church, that she would uh, it would probably be Catholicism, you know, uh, because of its beautiful rituals. You know, I mean, these these great cathedrals and, and these, these these costumes that they wear and, you know, these age old yeah. customs that they're using. Um, and this this puts you into a particular mental state. So, I mean, we do this all the time, you know, whether we call it religion or whether we watch TV and TV puts you in a particular hypnotic state. So I, I kind of found that interesting that his as he's beginning the, the, his teaching on his course in magic, that it's very similar to, to self-hypnosis, like you're, you're, you're trying to elicit a particular state. Why do you call why do you think they call TV programming? You're being programmed yeah, by the programmed. TV. That's right. So it's in order to do that, you're basically what you're saying, yes, you're entering a trans like state in order to access something more, right? It's like um Dana, you've astral projected, right? Yeah, once, one time. Yeah. Do you remember how it felt? Uh it was terrifying. I didn't do it on purpose in, in my yeah. in, to my <laughs> in my defense. But you're putting yourself in a different altered state of mind. That way you're, how to put it, it's not like your soul's in a box, right? Which is your body. And by altering your consciousness, you're able to open up a little bit of the lid so you can slide out, look around, and go back in. Or you're able to do magic out there. It's all about just altering your state of mind and then then using that, using that state to alter everything around you or alter yourself. It's all just about channeling. Or how to put it? There's there's a difference between the Western schools of thought on this and Eastern schools of thought. Whereas the Eastern schools of thought tend to do this over lifetimes, and they tend to help you like progress over lifetimes. Westerns, the Western schools of it are are geared towards doing it in a single lifetime, but it comes at a cost, right? Whereas in Eastern, like in Eastern schools, they're able to they're able to implement implement everything over lifetimes. And then they're able to get rid of the bugs slowly and work on it, right? Whereas you see how Crowley was fucking nuts. <laughs> and like how a lot of people who delve into magic end up losing their fucking mind. Well, that's the cause. Yeah. If you don't do something not correctly. Not enough conditioning. Well, yeah, it's you have to purge. You have to do certain rituals to cleanse yourself. To ment- It's not only physical preparation. It's mental preparation. It's spiritual preparation. Because once you do this stuff, you're opening a floodgate. You're opening a door that you can't close, right? Or if you and if you can't close it, great. 
but it's still there and it knows that you are aware. Well, at the opening, I mentioned that a lot of these teachings came from Alexandria and antiquity. And so one of the schools that arose, you know, around 300 AD was uh, Neoplatonism. And there was a philosopher, Plotinus, and he was a big fan of Plato, and he brings Plato back. And so Plotinus said, you know, all philosophy is training for what comes after death. And so exactly. you look at, at at these schools, and that was basically, you know, what they they were in, in, in a sort of spiritual boot camp because they believed in in kind of you know reincarnation and, and, and a lot of these ideas that that had currency in the Middle East. I mean, if you look at um, you know a lot of the even even uh, sects in Judaism believed in uh, in reincarnation. Um, the Sadducees didn't, and I remember that because they said, "Oh, they're sad." You see, um, so the but the Pharisees did, uh, the Essenes did. Like a lot of these these uh, these sects believed in reincarnation. There's a part in the Bible where there was a man born blind, and the apostles say to Jesus, "You know, what did he do in a past life? You know, to to be born blind like this?" And Jesus doesn't correct them. He doesn't say, "Oh, past lives don't exist." He doesn't say that. You know, he, he he gives some other answer. I can't remember what it was. You know, but he was basically saying it wasn't the guy's fault. Um, but he never says that reincarnation is not true. Now, whether he believed in that, if Jesus really was, you know, from one of the Essene sects or one of the other sects, we don't know. I mean, there's a lot of speculation on that. But yeah, a lot of there, there was a, a very um, you know kind of a multiplicity of opinions and a multiplicity of influences from Persia, you know, which believed in reincarnation, um, from North Africa, from Europe, I mean, from the, from the Indo-Europeans who were, you know, around the Black Sea Basin, all these ideas were coming together. For instance, a lot of the the teachings of the Hermetica um, come from Indo-Iranian uh, groups that were from the aforementioned Black Sea Basin, and they were doing astral projection and all these things. And that became a staple of the theosophists. When the theosophy movement, you know, kind of happened with Helena Blavatsky coming out of Russia, and she starts resuscitating all these old teachings as well at the same time period, um, you know, she, she's she's tapping into like a lot of these older teachings that were, you know, kind of, you know, going into the Middle East, even at the time of Jesus, before the time of Jesus, even, you know, the Hermetica parts of the Hermetica, you know, are probably older than oh, yeah. than the Bible. They're Egyptian. Yeah. Well, yeah. But some of them are Indo, Indo-European. Um, right. but, you know, and, and so, but I wanted to touch that as well. Like Florence Farr, who I mentioned earlier, who was kind of running the golden order of the dawn after the first three guys kind of bowed out and they, they kind of nominated her to run it. And then she quits and goes to theosophy. Um, she was a, a feminist, a first wave feminist, um, you know, at, at the time period. And she was kind of like a radical figure, but, um, she, she had great influence. I mean, uh, some of the people who were there, as I mentioned, were, were people like, uh, William Butler Yeats, uh, the poet Ezra Pound, Oscar Wild, the famous playwright. And um, I was just very interested by looking at England at this time period and all these people who were getting into the esoteric and how this was influencing. It was bleeding over into the wider society. And one of the things that I wanted to touch on that I, I think Sid kind of, you know, uh, briefly alluded to, he mentioned quantum mechanics. And um, one of the things in quantum mechanics was uh, Einstein quoted the spooky influence at a distance. And oh, in a, yeah. in a, spooky action. Yeah, spooky action. But one of the things I mentioned early, in an earlier podcast was when Isaac Newton uh, first came up with the concept of gravitation, the scientific community said that that was magic because he was describing influence at a distance, right? They, they only believed that you should see a physical object touching another physical object. They didn't believe in fields. And they said that that was tantamount to magic. Why? Because they defined mag magic as influence at a distance. And then the same thing happened to Michael Faraday in, in the mid-19th century when he came up with the idea of an electromagnetic field. Field. Once again, it was called pseudoscience. Why? Because it was called influence at a distance, but it was real. And now you go to Aleister Crowley and his description of magic. And how did he describe magic? He described it as influence at a distance, right? 
And so now we're, we're coming into this time period where technologically we're able to achieve influence at a distance through frequencies, you know, through, through satellite transmissions, through, you know, uh, transcranial magnetic resonance, where they're, they're, uh, they have the ability to influence and manipulate people through influence at a distance. And this is really magic, you know, and, and so the same groups that were pushing a lot of this, this stuff, this esotericism, this influence at a distance idea, um, were like, uh, as an example, the founders of Silicon Valley were the Varian brothers. Their parents were theosophists out of Ireland, and they moved to California. They become scientists, and they found Silicon Valley. So Silicon Valley has a lot of these these uh, these ideas. And I wanted to, to touch on on one thing. Um, there was a uh, a gentleman named Walter Bosley, and he's an author. And he oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and he and he wrote a book uh, about uh, Disneyland being on the thirty third parallel. And I kind of wanted to play that clip. So bear with me one second. It was 2006 that Greg Bishop and I were yapping about Disneyland on his show, Radio Mysterioso. And we, you know, we, uh, uh, we Googled it, pulled up, you know, the data on Wikipedia. And that's when we were looking and discovered, hey, wait a minute, Disneyland is at the 33rd latitude. Look it up yourself. A lot of weird, interesting things have happened at the 33rd degree north latitude around the globe. Okay, and there's Disneyland. I discussed it with Seshari, our friend Seshari, and he did the map of Disneyland that's in the book. Let me see if I can find it here real quick because I think I made it easy for myself. Yeah, here we go. Here's the um, map he did, the, the graphic he did of Disneyland. This is all his own artwork, by the way. And you see the three dotted lines? Those are the... Um, the gravity anomaly tectonic stress lines, as he calls them, which telluric current flows through these. Now, people say, oh, you mean ley lines. And originally in the book, I did call it ley lines. But anyway, um, th those those dotted lines, those are the what people would call ley lines, but they're actually telluric currents. And as you can see, they intersect at a particular spot in Disneyland, and where they intersect is in Fantasyland. And that's, of course, what this book is about. And studying that led to, well, the subtitle says it all, The Arcane Science and Hermetic Engineering of the Happiest Place on Earth, Disneyland. And the premise of what I'm saying in this book is that Disneyland may have been designed to be a psychotronic device. Now, it's built into a bowl. They dug into the earth, and it's this triangular, round-cornered bowl, okay? Um, I, if you guys remember the old Vicks cough drops that were kind of a V with rounded corners, that's what Disneyland looks like with the, you know, the point down. And um, around the edge that's at the normal ground level is where the berm for the train, the Disneyland train, runs around the park. But the rest of the park goes down, you know, into this bowl. So what he's basically saying is that the Magic Kingdom really is magic. And he mentions the term hermetic, hermetic technologies, you know, uh, creating a psychotronic kind of mind control device, you know. Um, so I found that very interesting that you see the direct influence of these kind of cultists from England, you know, in the 19th century and the influence, the cultural influence that they had, uh, you know, create, create in terms of the new age and create bringing back astral projection, bringing us yoga, uh, bringing us a tarot 
cards, like popularizing all these things and how it spills out into the wider culture. So where you have politicians who are part of these these groups, you have scientists who are founding Silicon Valley, uh, founding, you know, uh, Disneyland in California, you know, like on on these 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 uh, these geographical locations, these lines of longitude and latitude, which are not accidental, you know, and And just like PL. Yeah, exactly. Jet Propulsion's laboratory is another one, and we'll go directly into that. I mean, as an example, because of Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley, who was an order of the Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn, he becomes the father figure of Jack Parsons, who's the founder of Jet Propulsion's laboratories. And Jack Parsons was being investigated by the CIA uh, or the OSS at the time. Uh, because he was doing rocketry and they were wondering if he was, uh, you know, giving kind of secrets to what would later become Israel. And um, and so they did a background check on him and they discovered in the course of the background check that he, his side hobby was alchemy, just like uh, Sir Isaac Newton. And so he was friends with Aleister Crowley from the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. And now you, you get into the military industrial con- complex. At the very origin of the military industrial con- complex circa 1947, you have somebody who's tied into that Hermetic Order of the Golden and dawn, um, and so you, you see these these this genealogy of this new age belief system, you know, in, in a very clear line with like very few degrees of separation between point A and point B, and uh, how it how it seeps into the mainstream. Well, I'll just jump back to Walt Disney. There's always been uh, some speculation that Walt Disney was uh, an occultist, and it doesn't take you a lot of time to find uh, specific allegations that he was a, a Rosicrucian, so a member of the ancient mystical order of the Rosicrucius. Uh, there's also allegations, and uh, you'll even be able to find a photograph purporting to be Walt Disney wearing the uh, robes of the Masonic order of de Molay, uh, mm-hmm. named for Jacques de Molay, uh, Grand Master of the Knights Templar. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't take a lot to find th- these things that are possible. But one thing that we can say for sure is that um, if you take a look at uh, the, you know, the elite of the elite, the most elite uh, members of uh, American society in particular, and you could say this too for the, for the British Empire, they have an affinity for secret societies. And, yeah. uh, you know, yep. we can talk about in, in the John Birch Society, the New American Magazine talks about the Council on Foreign Relations, which is not a secret society, but certainly has certain elements of that. And the influence of members of the Council on Foreign Relations and the U.S. government in particular are very, very, very strong and very, very, they run very, very deep and they have yeah. for many decades. Um, and you can look at back and you can take a look at uh, some of the works of Anthony C. Sutton, who was with the Hoover Institute at one point. Uh, when he's tracing the influence of the probably most famous American secret society of that of Skull and Bones at Yale. And he traces in his works, the members of Skull and Bones from Yale and the, you know, very significant influence that they've had on the course of American history. Well, one of the things that I'm, that I, that you made me think of here, uh, touching upon what I said earlier about syncretism, and, uh, you know, mercantile societies and how they eventually collapse, you know, quoting Cicero, discussing it. And, um, you know, they, they, they become the hub of all these different foreign ideas and they become incubators and things get mixed up. Their original institutions kind of decay and are neglected. And then you have this this kind of oligarchical elite class within these merc- mercantile societies. And they like to think of themselves as cosmopolitans. They like to think that they're, oh, I'm well-traveled. Why? I'm mercantile. Yeah. And so they're, they're very, because they're mercantile, you know, by their very nature, they really place a lot of, of cachet 
cachet on foreign ideas on foreign because it because it's their way of saying hey i'm well traveled look i travel around the world and so i've gotten all these ideas so you see these women in 19th century england going to india and dressing ridiculously in saris you know you, you see these 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 people in secret societies dressed in fezes and, and robes and stuff and and that was their way of like showing you know how cosmopolitan they were and this this really you know is kind of a hallmark of a mercantile society you know where they they despise what is domestic they despise what is what is their actual heritage and they play up these like foreign influences and of course those foreign influences always get distorted because they're seen through the lens of you know of their culture which they can't really get rid of you know their original ontology so you, you get this really distorted version of what purports to be an ancient egyptian religion of the masons you know oh the master mason from you know egypt from ten thousand years. you know um and it's not i mean it, it bears a striking resemblance to the the culture and the milieu that that you know created it you know in, in its second incarnation speaking of incarnations um but one of the things i was also interested by that you mentioned walt disney uh possibly being a member of of, of a secret society you know rosicution um, because he did Fantasia with the with the uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice, the very famous you know Mickey Mouse, you know, uh, doing you know like magical tricks and stuff like that. So you know that would kind of play into that as well. But one of the things that said, I think Sid made a good point in is that they were it was kind of window dressing for them. Oh look, I'm well traveled. I've been to the esoteric side, and I I can you know I can emulate all these uh, fakirs and you know, the ancient occultism was none of the discipline that actually is authentic. And so they had none of the discipline that led to the development of all those power plays that people spent years and years, you know, being trained on how to uh, say, for instance, a snake charmer in India. It's, it's not just, a, you know, it's not just the ability to play a, a, a shamhorn or whatever at, at a snake and make it do something. There's a whole discipline and ascetic life behind it. And these people were just playing with the trappings. Yeah. And that's dangerous. Very, very dangerous. It's like, if you're like, Oh, it's like, if, um, uh, let me put a good example. Let's say there are a bunch of freaking like young people about 18 and they're about, they say, Oh, we just found this book on demonology. Let's try to summon one right yeah and and so then most times they'll fail because they don't do the thing right but sometimes they'll do the thing completely right and they'll summon something they don't even understand or comprehend and then weird random things happen exactly the thing is you haven't closed off the portal it's still there it's still following around it's like yo you summoned me what do you want well that plays but, into uh, what we we're saying yeah. about jack parsons before jack parsons yeah. who did jack babylon. propulsion laboratories yeah he was he was doing uh, alistair crowley's babylon working ritual and uh, he opened up a portal allegedly crowley claimed to have opened up a portal and spoken spoken to a large-headed alien that kind of looks like an alien gray oh, that he called lamb. lamb yeah and uh, and he closed the portal right he, he dies as a heroin addict in a hotel in the 40s i believe and um and jack parsons he opens the portal replicates crowley according to himself you know so, so we don't know the cia seems to to kind of put some store by it uh, there's a group of the cia called the collins elite that uh was researching kind of this stuff and and very if you want to read a fa fascinating book read final events by nick redfern and it goes into all of this into jack parsons and alistair crowley into the opening of a portal in 1947 ufos start coming out everybody starts wondering why is there suddenly all this activity 
in the skies with UFOs right over where, where uh, you know, Jack Parsons is, is doing this stuff. Like Roswell, New Mexico was one of the, the places. One of his friends was Kevin, Ke- Kenneth Arnold, who coins the term uh, U- UFO. Flying Fla- yeah, flying saucer, excuse me. Yeah, exactly. And so he opens up this portal and then dies leaving the portal open allegedly he dies in, in, a, in a rocket rocket uh, uh test he was doing rocket cartridges he, he dies tragically i believe he was still in his 30s he was a young man he was he's a very handsome like matinee idol looking handsome uh, young man a genius a genius intelligence but very eccentric and um given to occultism and esotericism and as sid said he was dabbling in things that perhaps he didn't really understand and so in the in the book final events uh, it, it opens with two CIA agents going to speak to a priest who was running the uh, mutual UFO network. And they, they kind of came to him for his, his dual skill set, that he was, on the one hand, he was a Christian, but on the other hand, he was also, you know, into UFOs. And they started asking him questions like, why do the UFOs always seem to bash Christianity? They never bash Islam. They never bash Judaism. They never bash Buddhism I, I or any other religion. I never heard UFO bashing Christianity. Yeah, I had, <laughs> I, I, I had neither before this, uh, before this, this book and accordingly according to the uh, to the book according to the priest uh he said yeah he had heard heard of these accounts where the really? alien grays yeah that's what if you read the book uh, final events by nick redford yeah. fascinating book and they actually start according to the book they start at right patterson air force base they start uh-huh. re- uh, recreating these esoteric technologies like trying to, to to produce apports you know objects from from midair would just fall through coins and newspapers from different time periods and and, and flowers and photographs from different dimensions i mean just very very strange stuff that you have our military kind of you know dabbling in you know because they they look at it as as a technology you know and they want to have a a a tactical advantage over you know any any rival and so you see them getting into these esoteric things like these psychotronic manipulation devices you know like they were talking about disney world being built into a, a bowl in the ground like a, like a radar dish and around that radar dish is metal and that's that metal is the uh, the, the, the 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 monorail right the monorail track is is acting like so the whole thing is acting like a radar dish and it's summoning some sort of energy or at least it's meant to and so you look at our media our modern media functions as like a psychotronic device you know and and, and most people are very aware that you know it's chief role is propaganda but it really isn't it's secondary um there was somebody i was i was reading online and he was saying yeah he was like he was like the, the media's main role is not actually propaganda he said the main role of it is as a psychotronic you know kind of energy concentration device it's getting getting the public to concentrate on particular images on particular ideas and they're thereby manifesting them you know so they'll create a fake narrative but if enough people concentrate on that like they, they there's a term egregore an egregore is 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 a thought creature like a tulpa um, that Alexander David Nail describes in in Tibet. That you know, she said that you the, don't the, want to mess with those. Yeah, the Tibetan monks knew how to summon tulpas, these energy creatures that were just mental creations, allegedly. So around 1900, she goes and she and she practices. She goes. She's the first white woman in Tibet. She makes a tulpa, and it's a little priest. Um, but it it starts to morph. It starts to go out of her control, and it turns into this little fat, you know, uh, kind of monk type, friar type. Tuck t- type creature, and it starts becoming male- malevolent. And finally, the, the the monks get together and they pray and they get rid of this this 
creature. Uh, but but you look at that tulpa, the, the concept of a tulpa in a large sense, when a lot of people concentrate on one thing, they can create what's called an egregore. And an egregore is almost like a demonic god, like Moloch, like Baal, where, where this thing, or Zeus, this thing wasn't real, but if enough people concentrate on it, they can almost make it real. And there, there was a, a, a series of studies in Canada, in Toronto in the 1970s, they called them the Philip experiments, where a bunch of non-believing atheists, scientists, psychologists, they got together and created a seance. And what was interesting about it was they created a seance on a fake character, what they knew was a fake character. And they called him Philip. They gave him a fake bio, a fake personality. He was from the 1600s, from England. And what freaked them out was it started to manifest. They would concentrate on it and it started. And that was just 12 people. Now, imagine if you had 12 million people or, or several billion people concentrating on, say, oh, I don't know, COVID. Concentrating on, oh, I don't know, the death of Diana or 9-11. Climate you know, change. Yeah, and, and you, you start to be able to manifest these things. So the media itself is one of these energetic devices, according to this line of thinking. Yeah. Here's a here's an interesting thing I just saw because you mentioned that. So you know of all the old religions that died off, like the, like all the paganism in Europe, right? That's getting revived now. What happens when the old gods reawake to a world they no longer recognize? Yeah, that's pretty It'll profound. Probably be I like mad that. to start with. Yeah, exactly. So then imagine all those chaotic times during Europe and all that. Now imagine it's spread throughout the globe. All the old gods just reawakening, right? The order and how to put it, the order that Christianity brought that pretty much like brought Europe to the forefront. Imagine all that order gone. It's going to be just pure chaos because in order for these things to live, they need more followers. They need energy. That's the whole deal. They just need mental energy to thrive on, to feed off of. It's kind of like a giant pendulum, right? You're being influenced by these things, either good or bad, but they're still feeding off of you. Well, you mentioned influence, right? And that gets us back to influence at a distance. And I was just thinking of the antenna is the new magic wand, right? Like oh, how the antenna that is being <laughs> constructed along every vaccine receiver's spinal cord and brain. Yeah, exactly. And and we get we get into that. I did a uh, just for anybody listening to this. I did a report called Ho- Jose Delgado and the Internet of Things and the idea that uh, you know as, as early as MK Ultra in the 1940s, where they wanted to be able to remote control people. And they Jose Delgado was a Spanish doctor, a scientist, and he created something called a stimaceiver, which he could put in people's brains, uh, in the brains of animals or whatever, and he could con- take over your your neurological system through radio frequencies, radio waves. And he did a very famous, uh, you know, kind of uh, exposition of a bull charging him, and then he presses a button, and the bull just stops in his tracks because he's hijacked its neurological system. And uh, so they they've been working quietly behind the scenes to basically, um, you know, advance this technology, and they've moved from the palm size stimaceiver to nanotechnology uh, to be able to, you know, kind of influence. You know, and this is whether it works or not. Who knows? But this is kind of the, these mad scientists are, you know, this is their dream. Is, is to be able to do influence at a distance. So w- what we're talking about is magic. And I was talking to Joseph Farrell about this, and, and, and I, I mentioned earlier how Christianity, a lot of mainstream Christianity has abandoned religion in the sense of the supernatural. They've, they've ama- abandoned energies. And they say, oh, no, that's just, you know, demons, stay away from that. Just, you know, kind of sit in the, in the pew and we'll discuss ethics or morals. But that's not really
really religion. You know, religion is like energies, you know, and, and it has always been, you know. And so as as mainstream religion has become more secular, more materialistic, more kind of dead spiritually, you have the opposite, this inversion of our, our oligarchs and our technological class becoming more spiritual, becoming more in touch with magic or influence at a distance. So you have this really just bizarre inversion of people who you would think would be kind of, you know, hard-bitten rationalists, you know, are military industrial complex. You wouldn't think they would have anything to do with this. Or our political leaders, you wouldn't think they would have anything to do with this. Or our intelligence agencies. But all of them are, are, are like uh, Dennis mentioned earlier, the roots of, of some of our intelligence agencies. I was watching a documentary on uh, the the creation of intelligence agencies, and they were basically created on the Jesuits. Um, th- there was a, a Lord right. Cecil Rhodes uh, in England. He wanted to reconstitute the British Empire, and he said, we have to create a conspiracy to basically take over the old Commonwealth countries, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and we want to fold them back over. But how do we achieve this? And he says, we have to act secretly with stealth. And he openly said, we should base a secret society around the Jesuit order of the Catholic Church. And so when you look at that, that Jesuit order with with kind of a, an inner sanctum, and then, then it had a radio radiating, you know, kind of a, a, a radial approach of outlying members who, who weren't aware of the secret, you know, kind of orders from the, the center committee, central committee. And um, you look at the CIA, you look at Mossad, you look at MI6, all of these are based on that same Jesuit order, the same religious orders. And so, so right now, Viktor Ostrovsky talked about this in his book, By Way of Deception, that Israel is not ruled by its official government. It's ruled by its intelligence agency. The United States is not ruled by its official government. It's ruled by its intelligence agency. England is not ruled by its official government. It's ruled by its intelligence agency. So basically, you have the, the ascendancy of these secret societies based on the Jesuits, based on these religious models and they act like it. They act, they've started going into esotericism. They've started dabbling in influence at a distance, you know, in these, these mad dreams of, of early cults. It's, it's very disturbing. I, I want to say too, that I think that this, it's very important from the, the Christian point of view to point out that what we're talking about with these ideas of magic and what the people who are attempting to utilize it for, we're talking about what a Christian would consider a grave sin against the faith. And it's an attempt, uh, I want to go back to this again, because it's an attempt by people to usurp what properly belongs to God. That's what makes it the terrible sin. And they are attempting to usurp what belongs properly to God because they want themselves to become gods on earth. And there is a long tradition uh, among materialists in particular uh, to create the um, earthly paradise as opposed to a heavenly paradise that Christians uh, try to get to and want to get to by faith in Jesus and his salvific mission. But, you know, the materialists, and again, I think they're tied directly back to things like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and the secret knowledge uh, methodologies of these uh, Gnostic and Hermetic uh, organizations. Uh, They want to usurp these things of God. They want to turn themselves into gods on earth and create the earthly paradise. And what you do when you create people and you may yourself, if you want to go in this direction, think you've become a God on earth, everyone else is lesser and everyone else could be sacrificed to your cause. And that gives rise directly to uh, the totalitarian and authoritarian mindset yeah, well, kind, of, kind of sounds like one to play uh, God if they're doing an, MR, an mRNA vaccine is certainly playing God. 
manipulating right. genetics. I, and that brings up something as well. I mean, you look at the Hermetic Order, the Golden Dawn, and once again, it bring, goes back to Hermes, it goes back to the Hermetica. And you look at the, the American Medical Association symbol, and it is not the, the rod. Caduceus. Yeah, it is not the rod of Asclepius, which is supposed to be the medical symbol, which is a single snake. It's the dual snake Double. with yeah, with the with the the feathers, with the the wings, which is the rod of Hermes. And that yeah. that to me is just bizarre. I mean, you look at Rockefeller. John D. Rockefeller was the guy who basically commissioned the creation of the American Medical Association in the 19th century, and uh, he takes over the medical industry. He drives the homeopaths out of uh, out of business. Although oddly, the Queen of England still retains a homeopathic uh, you know physician. Um, he tries to discredit all of them, and then he sells his own kind of you know patent medicines as the only solution. Right. And because he, he ran, you know, uh, you know, uh, petroleum. And so, so all of, well, all of these uh, these things are, are petroleum products, you know, the pills the you know, they, they have petroleum gel caps and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so he makes that the only solution. And what was interesting about John D. Rockefeller is his dad was a, uh, a snake oil salesman, a literal snake oil salesman. He would drive in a little cart with a horse <laughs> and he would and he would sell patent medicines and alcohol and telling you that this would heal well. you fallen arches and and weak eyesight and halitosis, you know, that's what his dad was. So ironically, when John D. Rockefeller creates the AMA, he's almost like becoming an apotheosis of his dad. And 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 so those two snakes are almost like symbolic of snake oil, you know, <laughs> from, from the rod of Hermes. But you have to think of that. In the 19th century, when they, when they discovered the rod of Hermes and they used that as the symbol for that organization, they weren't going to Google Image. You know, they couldn't have messed that up. Oh, I went to Google Image. Oh, I, I meant to get the rod of Asclepius, but I accidentally got the rod of Hermes. No, there was no Google Image back then. So they had to purposely get that image. And you have to start asking yourself, why? Why that image? Why the, why the rod of Hermes? Chapter three, conclusion. Dennis, uh, what what are your conclusions on the influence of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn on the subsequent, you know, from the 19th century into the 20th and now the 21st century? Well, I think that uh, the, the influence uh, of the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn was not decisive in the sense that it is the primary secret society of the Gnostic approach to uh, the occult, but it certainly was a part of that. I don't think it's any mistake that a, a group of Masons created this thing. Uh, and I think they created it partially through fraud with the, the ciphertext, which I think were entirely fraudulent. Um, but it's part of that larger, it's part of the larger long-term trend, uh, really anti-Christian trend that even going back to the church fathers, uh, they opposed uh, in terms of, you know, uh, against the Gnostics and some of the, the, the church fathers texts uh, talking about the heresy of the Gnostic uh, approach. We're still seeing that today. And it, it's, it's the battle of the principalities of the, of the, of the church, the Christian faith, against evil. Uh, because as I said, we're talking about an attempt to usurp when you're talking about the occult um, practitioners, you're attempting to usurp the powers that belong primarily and properly to God and create gods of men. And when you do that, it's incredibly dangerous, which we've seen demonstrated uh, in the incredible bloodlust of the 20th century. Uh, and hopefully we won't see that repeated in the 21st, but the way things are going, who knows? Uh, and these things need to be opposed because we're all going to suffer uh, from the evils that are unleashed if we don't properly oppose them. Yeah, you kind of reminded me of how people in Silicon Valley, once again, just to mention, founded by the Varian brothers who were theosophists and wore white robes, they were occultists. 
um, you know, that they're, they're calling themselves masters of the universe and they're bragging openly. You can Google articles on uh, them saying, oh, we're going to live for 200 years. We're going to be the first trillionaires. We're so far above you. I mean, the, the level of hubris from these people and, and sociopathy is just is, is breathtaking. Um, Sid, what are your takes on the uh, your, your, your final wrap up on the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn? I would say the order ultimately went nowhere, but a lot of its members were very influential in life and they carried those teachings with them. And then they passed those teachings, those teachings onto other people. And so we're at a crossroads where those people have been influencing society for the past hundred or so years, or plus hundred years. So they've ultimately disarmed the Christian spiritually, you know, like the Christian mindset in the West now is, and this is because of industrial revolutions and all these other things, but basically they've laid down their spiritual weapons. They've put down their armor and now, now the people are about to strike them. So I would just say, start reclaiming them, start looking back into it, man, you know, start rearming yourself. So you're ready. Interesting. Okay. So Jenny, what's your, uh, your final take? Well, I think we're dealing with this um, influence in today's world that goes back thousands of years and the secret societies were just the 1800s manifestation of it. There's another set of those same bloodlines or uh, people that think they're above um, managing the sheep-like populace right now and leading them to their deaths. And I think we're at a, we're at a time of incredible upheaval and change and, uh, I'm hoping that enough people start waking up to the influence of these people and start countering um, all the things they've been able to get away with, like 9-11 or the killing of JFK, all those major events in history, I think, were completely uh, organized or arranged for by these groups. And so I'm looking at them as one of the worst influences in our world today. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of what we were talking about before, like how modern intelligence agencies are based on the Jesuits, openly so, you know, by the Milner Group and uh, Cecil Rhodes, you know, back in, in the 19th century, late 19th century in the British Empire. Yeah, I was going to say, is that Opus Dei? No, uh, no. Uh, this is the the Milner Group, basically roundtable uh, groups, and uh, yeah. you know, Dennis mentioned earlier the Council on Foreign Relations, and so the Council right. on Foreign Relations. If you read um, the Tragedy and the Hope by historian Carol Quigley, he talks about the formation of roundtable groups that um, that uh, what's his name Rhodes came up with. Cecil Rhodes was the magnate and a British billionaire guy, you know, in today's terms, yeah. and he created the first transcontinental railroad in Africa. He made all this money. Um, in diamonds and gold and, you know, just transportation, supply chain, and uh, became grossly rich, vastly rich, and he wanted to reconstitute the British Empire. And so he creates roundtable groups as as moles in all of the Commonwealth Commonwealth countries. And so he creates them in Canada, creates them in, in uh, Australia, New Zealand. And the name of the roundtable group in the United States is the Council on Foreign Relations. So it was explicitly created to, you know, kind of subvert the sovereignty of the United States. And they used kind of the, the, the template of moling into things and spying that the Jesuits kind of used. Um, Voltaire was a very, very... Um, uh, virulent critic of the, uh, the the methodologies of some of these uh, Catholic kind of splinter groups, these sects. Um, you know, look look at the country, the Dominican Republic. Why is it called that? Because the Dominican Order went in and kind of created a political state. The Jesuits were constantly going in. They got kicked out of Japan, as an example, because the Japanese said, "Wait, you're not." 
coming here and spreading Christianity. You're coming here and you're making political organizations and you're actually trying to subvert our country. So they acted like an intelligence agency. You know, um, before we had a word intelligence agency, they were the intelligence branch of the Roman Catholic Church and they were doing things right. that had nothing to do with religion. You know, so a lot of, so you have this confluence of events where you have England, which is the mercantile hub, the power hub, the financial hub of the world. And at that same time, you have this esotericism and they melded at the high, higher echelons of society because all the, all the rich people wanted to look fashionable and wanted to look well-traveled and wanted to look like they were knowledgeable about, you know, the Hermetica or knowledgeable about, you know, Northern Indian religion and all these things. And, um, you know, it was just a, a fashion statement in one sense, but in another sense, like Sid said, it allowed them to influence the culture vastly. Like what we today call the new age was started, you know, by these people, like our particular flavor of it, you know, and it's existed before. I mean, in the middle ages, you know, as I said in the opening, um, you know, when, when uh, the Republic of Venice was bringing in books from the Middle East, you know, and, and created alchemy, you know, the, like what we call alchemists and stuff, that was one manifestation of it. An earlier manifestation was the Library of Alexandria. So this, this cycle keeps happening over and over again in mercantile hubs. And there's always always this esoteric flavor to it. And so we're living through this manifestation where, as Sid said, they've subverted our original Christian culture and they've replaced it, you know, at the highest yeah. levels with like the UN has the Lucius Trust, which used to be called the Lucifer Trust, you know, right. um, you know, right at the highest levels, the theosophists and stuff, uh, you know, with their their connections to the creation of the UN. So this this whole, you know, thing is, is, is a, a secular religion. And that's the irony of it. The scary irony of it is they appear to be using what we would have called magic you know like i said before arthur c clark you know uh, any sufficiently advanced science is indistinguishable from magic and we're at that point so I, i'll wrap it up there and i wanted to thank our our guests uh jenny silcox the mysterious sid and and dennis barrett uh from the new american magazine and i'm daniel natal and i will see you next time here on under the iceberg <laughs> <laughs>